On October 23, 1935, the Palace Chop House in Newark, New Jersey, was unusually quiet. But at around 6 p.m., an infamous regular strode in. Notorious bootlegger Dutch Schultz, accompanied by two bodyguards and one other member of his crew, sat in a back room. Schultz's men flanked him on all sides. As the night wore on, the few other guests settled their tabs and left. Before long, Schultz's crew were the only patrons in the joint. But from where they sat, the gangsters had no idea they were alone, with no eyewitnesses in the vicinity. Around 10.30 that night, Schultz excused himself to go to the restroom. As soon as he left the table, two angry-looking men in topcoats walked in. They instructed the bartender to, quote, lie down on the floor and stay there. One man walked into the bathroom, took out a gun, and fired at Schultz. When the assassin's partner heard the shots, he sprayed bullets at the mobster's entourage. In the following days, the murderers were identified, but another big mystery remained unsolved when Schultz seemingly took to his grave. What happened to his fortune? Legend has it Schultz buried millions of dollars in a secret location. Now that he was dead, his wealth was apparently lost forever. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Dutch Schultz's lost treasure. During the early 20th century, the bootlegger allegedly buried $7 million worth of gold and jewels. But he was killed in 1935 without ever revealing the stash's location. Today, we'll explore the infamous life of Dutch Schultz. We'll take a closer look at how he made his fortune, his run-ins with the law, and the reasons why he was brutally murdered. Next time, we'll dig deep into the legends surrounding the treasure, the hunt that's still ongoing almost a century later, and a recent clue that blows everything else out of the water. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state.
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Long before Dutch Schultz was an infamous bootlegger, he was known as Arthur Flegenheimer. But for consistency, we'll refer to him as Schultz throughout. Born in 1901 to German-Jewish immigrants in the Bronx, Schultz grew up in extreme poverty. His struggles intensified during his teenage years when his father abandoned the family. His mother's salary as a janitor wasn't enough to support the household, so Schultz dropped out of school to help them make ends meet. He did odd jobs like roofing and selling subway transfers on the streets. As he worked around town, Schultz came to know the wealthier people in his neighborhood. He realized they all had one thing in common. The rich men were criminals. Schultz envied their money and their lifestyle. By his early teens, he joined a youth gang. They stole, shoplifted, and broke into homes. Schultz was street smart, but his enthusiasm for breaking the law put him on the police radar. On December 12, 1919, he was arrested for burglary. He was only 18, and while he was off the streets, the crime world transformed. Just one month after his arrest, prohibition began, outlawing alcohol across the country. Supporters of the ban suggested it would prevent accidents on the job, save marriages, and eliminate an ungodly and corrupt drinking culture. But instead of healing society, prohibition made the dark underbelly of crime even more lucrative. Since alcohol was illegal, the only people making more liquor were bootleggers. Now underground, these criminals monopolized the booze trade. By the time Schultz got out of jail in 1921, the black market for alcohol was rampant, and he wanted in. He stepped back into his old role with his former gang, except his time in prison had given him a tough, fearsome exterior. His posse nicknamed him Dutch Schultz in honor of an old Bronx gang member known for violence. So the bruiser got a job as a bouncer, where he settled fights with a baseball bat. In no time, Schultz went from working at speakeasies to owning them. Around this time, Schultz brewed his own beer and supplied it to the area's bars. Although patrons complained about the taste, speakeasies had no choice but to serve it. If they didn't, they'd find themselves on Schultz's bad side. Joe Rock was one of the poor souls who decided to risk his wrath. Rock ran a speakeasy and refused to sell Schultz's beer. So the bootlegger and his thugs kidnapped Joe, took him to a remote location, and held him for ransom. While waiting for their payment, they hung the speakeasy owner from a meat hook by his thumbs and beat him. By the time the Rock family paid his ransom, Joe had gone blind. The incident added to the mystique of Schultz's reputation. 
From that point on, he was known as the Beer Baron of the Bronx. Over the next few years, Schultz went head-to-head with other gangsters trying to take over his business and mobsters encroaching on his territory. Each time, Schultz came out victorious. He always managed to murder his opponents before they could kill him. Many of these confrontations played out publicly, which put Schultz on the police's radar yet again. And as it turned out, he was one of many gangsters the authorities were keeping tabs on. In 1930, the two most notorious mafia rivals, Giuseppe Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano, were at war. One rising mobster, Charles Lucky Luciano, decided to take matters into his own hands. He arranged the assassination of both men so he could ascend to power. In 1931, Lucky created a group called The Commission, a national criminal syndicate. It was composed of New York City's top five organized crime families, as well as crime outfits from Buffalo and Chicago. Schultz was on the outside of this circle. As a prominent mobster on the New York scene, he was occasionally invited to meetings concerning his territory. But because of his impulsive and erratic behavior, he was perceived as too out of control to be trusted with sensitive matters. Those who were part of the syndicate agreed to govern the American mafia all across the country. The commission was the final word on every dispute, territory war, and matter of internal violence. One of their most pressing issues was the future of bootlegging. By 1932, prohibition was coming to an end. Public support for the law was waning, largely because of the mafia's monopoly on booze. Plus, legalizing alcohol could boost an American economy languishing in the Great Depression. Manufacturing and selling liquor would create new jobs and revenue. But the repeal of prohibition and the poor economy didn't concern Schultz. If he could no longer make money as a beer baron, he'd find another revenue stream, one the Mafia wouldn't touch, the Harlem Numbers Racket. The scheme centered around an illegal lottery where gamblers placed bets by predicting real-world financial information. Perhaps you visited a business where you could win a prize by correctly guessing how many gumballs are in a jar or something similar. The numbers rackets in Harlem and other communities worked the same way. But instead of counting candy, bettors were encouraged to guess how much credit the Federal Reserve had at the end of the day, or how much a given horse race would pay out. Since nobody knew what these numbers would be until the close of business, it was virtually impossible for anyone to cheat. The numbers racket was especially popular among black people during the Great Depression. Many were unemployed, and they generally received less aid from public assistance programs than white people. For black folks, the promise of a potential payout was more valuable than the pennies it took to place a bet. But the so-called bankers who ran each operation really profited from the game. The racket generated thousands of dollars a day in Harlem. Yet mobsters didn't appear to care. Unlike Schultz, the Mafia was content making money the way they always had, through sex work, gambling, and drug trafficking. 
Their lack of interest might have had something to do with the racism within the white American mafia. According to Nate Henley, author of Dutch Schultz, The Brazen Beer Baron of New York, the organization saw black operations as unimportant, not worth their time and business. But Schultz didn't care what race his patrons were, as long as he got paid. So he formed a business partnership with Dixie Davis, a lawyer representing many of the policy bankers in the racket. Together, Schultz and Davis hatched a scheme. First, Schultz would call the bankers and offer his protection for a fee. The bankers would then consult with Davis, who'd advise them to accept Schultz's offer. Under this arrangement, the gangster let the black bankers stay in business as long as they cut him in on their profits. And since the numbers game workers were aware of Schultz's reputation for violence, they didn't risk upsetting him. With Davis on his side, Schultz gained complete control of the Harlem racket, but he wanted more. So he decided to swindle gamblers out of even more money by fixing the numbers game. If he and his associates could make it harder for gamblers to win the lottery, Schultz would pay out fewer winners and he'd keep more money for himself. To pull off this maneuver, the gangster and his associates based the winning numbers on something they could manipulate, horse race payouts. They'd track which bets were placed in the numbers game, then strategically gamble at the tracks to skew the odds. Although their wagers at the casinos didn't always win, the mobsters made sure the final payouts at the track often didn't match any policy numbers. But even the immense profits from the rigged game weren't enough for Schultz. He also got into the less illegal dining business. Under Schultz's orders, his associates created a phony organization called the Metropolitan Restaurant and Cafeteria Owners Association. In theory, the group advocated for staffers' rights. But in reality, Schultz used the association to extract membership dues from restaurant owners. Thanks to this and other schemes, the gangster's empire was massive by the end of 1932. Between the two businesses, he was reportedly making between 12 and $16 million a year. But as Schultz's fortune swelled, so did the incriminating evidence against him. With each illegal business he ventured into, he gained more attention from the government, and they were poised to take him down. Coming up, the FBI names Schultz public enemy number one. Hi, Parcasters. It's Greg and Vanessa from the series Serial Killers. For the past five years, we've explored hundreds of history's most notorious murderers, giving listeners an intimate look at their sordid origins and heinous crimes. If you haven't had a chance to join us before, there's no better time to dive in than right now for our Serial Killers 5th Anniversary Special. It's a four-part examination into the mythology surrounding four fearsome killers. Edmund Kemper, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Our fifth anniversary series uncovers the men behind the mayhem, analyzing what turned them into killers and how their lethal behavior made their stories larger than life. 
If you've listened to the show before, we hope you enjoy. And if you haven't, this is the perfect series for any avid ParCast fan. Follow Serial Killers to hear our four-part fifth anniversary special. Listen now, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the 1920s, Dutch Schultz made a name for himself as a bootlegger who was not to be messed with. Even when alcohol was legalized again, the gangster dabbled in the Harlem numbers racket and a phony restaurant advocacy group. But the more powerful Schultz grew, the more authorities wanted to take him down. In 1931, the Southern District of New York assembled a federal grand jury to assess the finances of Dutch and other mobsters, led by prosecutor Thomas Dewey. Just six years out of law school, Dewey had political aspirations, and he knew taking down organized crime would help him get where he wanted to go. Dewey believed the easiest way to put mobsters away was to indict them on tax evasion. After all, criminals usually didn't report income from their illegal businesses. This strategy had recently brought down nefarious gangster Al Capone. The feds hoped to nail Schultz on the same verdict. To build his case, Dewey honed in on the fact that Schultz hadn't filed any taxes from 1929 to 1931. He estimated the mobster owed almost $100,000. Not only would the gangster have to pay, he could face decades in prison. Just what Dewey wanted to take Schultz off the streets. So on January 25th, 1933, he indicted the mobster for tax evasion. But Schultz refused to pay up. Remember, he grew up in poverty, and even as an adult, he was wary of spending money. Even with $7 million to his name, he was still insecure about his wealth. Although he was a wanted man, Schultz spent nearly two years after the indictment hiding in plain sight. He went out on the town with various women. He frequented clubs and restaurants. The gangster knew he could move freely because he had city leaders in his pocket. But as recently elected mayor Fiorello LaGuardia took office, that all began to change. He promised to wipe the city clean of corruption and crime, starting with racketeers like Schultz. The mayor went after the mobster's business, even throwing some of his illegal slot machines in the East River. Schultz was feeling the heat. The final straw came when the FBI director announced Schultz was an undercover public enemy number one, meaning the Bureau considered him one of the top criminals who was still at large. They increased their scrutiny of his operations, which forced the mobster's hand. The heightened government surveillance made it next to impossible for Schultz to continue running his illegal operations. While in hiding, the mobster tried to bribe U.S. officials by paying his taxes 
and a little more on top for whoever could make Dewey's agents go away. But the authorities refused to let him go so easily, and ultimately, on November 28, 1934, Schultz turned himself in. Five months later, Schultz's trial began in Syracuse, New York. But even though prosecutors finally got their day in court, they struggled to present a convincing argument. Witnesses refused to testify against the mobster because of his violent reputation. His right-hand man sat silently on the stand. Whenever the lawyer asked him a question, the witness pleaded the fifth. Another witness showed up to court, but pretended he wanted to take a walk. He never came back. Although he was charged with contempt of court, he preferred that over a punishment doled out by Schultz. The case ended in a hung jury. Because the verdict was inconclusive, the government could retry Schultz. But before they launched a new trial, Schultz proclaimed his innocence to the press. Whether or not reporters actually believed him, they didn't dare challenge the mobster to his face. For his part, Schultz loved the media attention. The mobster boasted he was smarter than Al Capone. Unlike the Chicago gangster, Schultz hadn't lost in court. But Dewey had another shot at putting Schultz away. Three months after the hung jury, Schultz's second trial began in the small town of Malone, New York. The gangster knew this could be his final stop before prison, so Schultz made a plan. If he could sway the townspeople, he could win over the jury, too. The normally frugal mobster started throwing money around. He paid for people's bar tabs and reportedly took the mayor to a baseball game. All the while, he wore cheap $2 suits, which made him seem more working class. The small conservative town didn't see him as a rich mobster, but as a kind-hearted middle-class man. Schultz's good relationship with the community seemed to buy him goodwill during the trial. The jury acquitted Schultz, causing a huge uproar in the courtroom. Reporters were shocked the infamous mobster was walking away. Disappointed, the judge told the jury, quote, Your verdict is such that it shakes the confidence of law-abiding people in integrity and truth. Even the mobsters were surprised by the outcome. The commission had been poised to take control of Schultz's lucrative businesses as soon as he went to jail. So when the gangster was acquitted, they didn't celebrate. They were furious. While Schultz enjoyed life as a free man, the authorities strategized other ways to bring him down. New York State's governor appointed Thomas Dewey as a special prosecutor to look into the Harlem numbers racket. He was determined not to let Schultz get away scot-free again. Once a feared mobster, Schultz was now under attack on multiple fronts. His legal bills were piling up, other mafiosi were eyeing his businesses, and he was being investigated again. So he decided to put his skill set to good use. He'd carry out a hit on the prosecutor. This wouldn't be an average mob murder. Thomas Dewey wasn't just a big name in New York. He was well-known nationwide. As word spread Schultz was after the prosecutor, even the FBI director warned Dewey to be cautious. For extra security, the government assigned him a pair of bodyguards. 
The prosecutor was now an even more difficult target, but that didn't stop Schultz from making threats to Dewey's pregnant wife. He and his associates called her constantly. Once, they allegedly tried to coax her out of the house by claiming her husband was dead and she'd need to come to identify his body. These brazen tactics didn't work, and it's possible Schultz wasn't really planning to kill Dewey. Yet, he didn't have permission. As we discussed before, the commission had the final word on matters of violence. Schultz needed approval from the five families before he could assassinate the prosecutor. And for a hit of this magnitude, he needed the help of Murder Incorporated. Murder, Inc. was the commission's branch of assassins. The group, historians estimate, was responsible for anywhere from 400 to 1,000 murders in the 1930s. So, the gangster walked into a commission meeting and requested they sick Murder Incorporated on Dewey. But the commission was hesitant to go after such a high-profile leader. Killing Dewey would put a major spotlight on the shadowy crime syndicate. The backlash could prompt authorities to go after the mob as a whole, not just Schultz. In other words, murdering Dewey could threaten the entire mafia's survival. So they refused Schultz's request. Schultz was outraged by their position. Regardless of any potential consequences, he wanted the prosecutor dead. So he screamed he'd do the job himself, then flipped over a table on his way out. Schultz left the commission alone to think long and hard about his threat, which was a mistake, because he was already on their bad side, and they had good reason to want Dewey alive. If the new case against Schultz resulted in his arrest, the commission could finally seize his businesses. So the group reached a consensus. Murder, Inc. would carry out a major assassination. They just wouldn't be killing the person Schultz wanted them to. Coming up, the secret Schultz takes to his grave. Now, back to the story. By the mid-1930s, mobster Dutch Schultz was on thin ice. Public officials were investigating his businesses, looking for any evidence they could use to put him away. Meanwhile, the mafia heads of the commission were eager to eliminate the erratic gangster and seize his massive wealth for themselves. As New York authorities cracked down on him, Schultz left the state and settled down at a hotel in New Jersey. With less government scrutiny there, he had a better chance of endearing himself to locals. Just as he'd charmed the townspeople of Malone when he was on trial, Schultz hoped to win over the New Jerseyans. As long as the mobster was popular with the public, he was confident he'd stay a free man. So he set out to find a neighborhood spot discreet enough to conduct his illicit business, but popular enough he could schmooze with the community. He chose a local Newark restaurant called the Palace Chop House. The joint had a 60-foot bar, eight booths, and a private back room. And it was right by his hotel. Every night, Schultz mingled with customers and courted the press at his table. The mobster declared his innocence to anyone who would listen. That is, until October 23, 1935. That night, Schultz, 
his bodyguard Lulu Rosencrantz, and their two compatriots conducted business as usual in the chop house's back room. Account books and papers were splayed out in front of them. They'd just finished eating when Schultz got up to use the restroom and two men walked in. Their top coats were unbuttoned and they had guns underneath. Murder Incorporated had sent two of their best men to assassinate Schultz. They came prepared with a revolver, an automatic pistol, and a double-barreled shotgun. The bullets were intentionally rusty, so if the gunshot didn't kill its victim, the rust would cause sepsis and infection. Any shot would be fatal, no matter where it landed. The bullet that struck Schultz went into his abdomen, tearing through his large intestines, gallbladder, and liver. The hired assassins fled without confirming Schultz was dead. They figured he was as good as gone. But somehow he made it out of the bathroom, dragging himself through the restaurant all the way to his table. Shocked his boss was still alive, bodyguard Lulu Rosencrantz stumbled to the bar and did something he'd never imagined. He called the police. As soon as the first responders arrived, the wounded were rushed to the hospital. There, they remained under supervision in case of any future attacks. Newark authorities didn't want a massacre to go down on their turf. But when officers drilled Schultz and his gang about who'd shot them, the silence was deafening. Rule number one for mobsters, never snitch. Schultz even looked at the police and roared, leave me alone. He went through surgery, but there wasn't much the doctors could fix. He'd endured massive internal damage and swelling. The rusty bullet had worked as the assassins intended. While he waited to die, Schultz remained under armed guard, with a stenographer always in his room. Police hoped the mobster would make some deathbed confessions. If he happened to give up any mafia secrets, the stenographer would have a transcript ready for the authorities. Officials let every journalist into Schultz's room during his final hours. Photos of the dying mobster graced the pages of newspapers across the country. With a high fever, Schultz was drifting in and out of consciousness. A day after being shot, the gangster gave a rambling, incoherent monologue. He uttered seemingly random sequences like, Oh, oh, dog biscuit. And when he's happy... He doesn't get snappy. And you can play jacks, and girls do that with a softball, and do tricks with it. It was nonsense, but the stenographer wrote down every word until Schultz had no more words left. On October 24, 1935, the 34-year-old gangster died. The other three men shot in the chop house also succumbed to their injuries. One of their assassins was ultimately convicted and imprisoned for the homicide, but few mourn Schultz's untimely passing. His downfall served as a cautionary tale to mobsters. Never defy the commission. The mafia proved it was bigger than any individual, no matter how powerful he, she, or they might seem. But gangsters and the general public alike wondered, what happened to the mobster's massive fortune? According to biographer Nate Hendley, before Schultz was indicted, 
he was making somewhere between 12 and 16 million dollars a year. And throughout his career, Schultz had saved most of his wealth. He knew the value of money, and he never wanted to go without. He bragged about buying cheap suits for two bucks a pop while shaking his head at those who spent lavishly. The only time Schultz ever splurged was on bribes, like when he covered patrons' bar tabs during his trial in Malone. But even then, he only paid small amounts relative to the millions he was worth. Considering how little Schultz spent during his lifetime, people expected he must have had a massive fortune when he died. But to everyone's surprise, his wealth was nowhere to be found. All we have to go by are rumors about where it might be. Schultz's confidants, rivals, and spectators all say they heard the same story. When he was being prosecuted by Thomas Dewey, Schultz feared he'd go to jail. As he contemplated life in prison, the gangster worried his fortune would be stolen by enemies or seized to cover unpaid taxes. So he allegedly gathered around $7 million worth of cash, gold, bonds, and jewels. He and his most trusted bodyguard, Lulu Rosencrantz, likely stashed the valuables in a waterproof safe, then buried it. It's unclear if they ever told another soul where the treasure was. Since both men died within 24 hours of each other after the chop house shooting, nobody had a chance to ask them. Today, estimates of the stash's value range from 50 to 100 million dollars. The guesses vary so wildly because there's a lot of debate on what was actually buried in that safe. In the nearly 90 years that have passed since Schultz's death, fortune seekers have studied his biography, scoured New England, and searched for hints in his final words. But nobody had found any sign of the missing wealth. That is, until professional treasure hunters Steve Zazulik and Ryan Fazekas decided to take a stab at the mystery. And in 2020, the two men uncovered a clue that could open the door to unimaginable riches. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with part two of the Dutch Schultz treasure. For more information on Dutch Schultz, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dutch Schultz, the brazen beer baron of New York by Nate Hendley, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Haley Ross, edited by Ben Hanani and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.